What are what are the qualities that make something specifically dad joke tier? It's got to be ki- kind of corny. I mean, it becomes a a joke becomes a dad joke when it becomes apparent. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, first up the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Joey, I couldn't figure out how to fasten my seatbelt the other day, but then it clicked. Oh, well, I'm very good. Uh, Safety is important there, Matt. I'm glad that you're here with us. (laughs) Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Hey, Joey, I'm a 3-3 elk. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, Oko got to Dana. Whatever will we do? And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we're going to try and give that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're going to talk about the top dogs, the biggest commanders from some recent sets. That is right. We want to look through the past two years of sets and see which commanders are at the top of the pile and which commanders have filtered all the way down to the bottom of the barrel. But before we get there, we have an announcement that we need to make sure that we reiterate to our listeners because Dana and I will be at the upcoming Command Fests, which are going to be happening as this episode comes out and airs on November 1st. So if you are in Command Fest for Chicago, go and find Dana Roach. If you are in Command Fest for Seattle, come and find me. We are going to have so much fun at these commander parties. This is a really exciting time to be a commander player. Yeah, we'll we'll try to tweet out on Twitter where we're sitting roughly when we're there if you're looking to track us down. And you can just DM us on there or, or message us online as well if you're trying to find us. And we will be glad to get a game in. Absolutely. We may even have some EDHREC pins that we can we hand may. out to folks if you find us. So definitely come and say hi. It will be awesome to meet listeners in the real life. And Matt, hopefully one of these days we're going to get you at one of these tournaments. We missed you in Vegas. We miss you at these Command Fests, but we're going to get you to one of them. We promise. Don't worry. At Command Fest Denver. Oh, <laughs> dang it. Give it time. I did, Matt, I did represent but... at GP Denver. I, I was I was one of the 600 people in the building at that bustling <laughs> metropolis. But it was good. I still got some some games in then. Um, sadly, driving distance from the uh, the mountains just doesn't doesn't work for these command fests. Apparently, just yet. That's the thing. This just is a really yet. cool precedent that you know I can expect to see a lot of these in the future if these go really well. I think that this is a really exciting development. So we'll get you at one of them one of these days. Cannot wait for it. And definitely come and say hi to us at the Command Fests. It's going to be a total blast of a weekend. Let's move on now to our main topic, though. As Matt mentioned, it's the top dogs. We're going to be looking at the past two years of sets to see which commanders are the most popular and which commanders are the least popular, and just make some observations about maybe why those commanders are where they are. So let's move on now to our first, most recent set and look at the commanders that we have there. Matt, you want to walk us through the commanders from Throne of Eldraine and which ones are most and least popular? So the most popular from Throne of Eldraine is Alila, Artful Provocateur. She's the fairy tribal commander. Whenever you cast an artifact or an enchantment, you put a 1-1 fairy token into play. She's the Esper Colors. She's coming in already at 594 decks. So that's a pretty good number um, considering Throne of Eldraine's been out, what, about a month now at this point? Yeah, pretty recent stuff. Yep. And then coming in at second place, 40 decks behind Alila, 
is Corvold, Fae Curse King, 557 decks. He is that value dragon, the Jund legendary dragon. Whenever you sacrifice a permanent, you put a plus one, plus one count on him, you draw a card, and then when he enters the battlefield or attacks, you have to sacrifice permanent. So he makes himself pretty big pretty quick. It's a pretty narrow gap percentage-wise between Corvold and Alila. It's not surprising to see Corvold because, you know, we, we've said from the very beginning, Corvold's pretty powerful, so... Uh, we weren't really surprised to see him coming in with such high numbers. Alila, though, is a little interesting. Yeah, seeing her at the top spot. And that's what we want to notice throughout all of these. We've got one of the commanders that's the most popular, and then we want to observe their runner-up. And I gotta admit, I would have expected these commanders to be in different places. I thought that Corvold probably would have taken the top spot, if not Chulain from Throne of Eldraine. But instead, we're seeing Alila is actually the most popular one so far of the 19 total legendary creatures from Throne. Well, it, one of the things I would guess, and, and this will maybe come to bear as we go through more of these, the more different quadrants I think a commander hits, the more likely it is to be number one. And there's a bunch of different quadrants, I guess. But, you know, one would be, in Alela's case, it's a, a deck you can build fairies around, which we haven't had since Una way back in, in Lorwyn. And Una doesn't necessarily even care that much about fairies. Right. It's doing it in three colors that's you know, quite unusual. It was definitely a, a black-blue thing before. Um, it's a cool-looking card. It's relatively powerful. So th there's a lot going on there that makes it attractive to multiple different groups of people. And I think the more of those different things you can say about these commanders, the more likely they are to be higher up on this list. Yeah, agreed. Especially when we compare it to, now let's look at the least popular commander from Throne of Eldraine. That's Sir Alan the Lion's Claw. And if you don't remember what that one does, we really can't blame you. There's only two decks to Sir Alan's name right now, and that is the Mono White 5 mana 4-4 four, four commander. And when it attacks, it gives your army plus 1, plus 1. It's just not very compelling. So we've got a really big spread between the 594 decks and just two decks for Sir Alan compared to the really popular Alila. It's... Not a surprise to see that kind of commander at the bottom of a barrel. Yeah, and, and, and I think the, the difference here, talking about hitting multiple quadrants, Tulane's definitely a strong commander. It's, you know, it's in Bant where, where it's probably the best of the options there, but I'm not sure there's there's another thing that it brings to the table beyond that, like Lela does with fairies. Right. So, so I, th I think, you know, the more of those things you stack up, the higher rated it's going to be, and I think that's why you see something like Tulane as disgustingly powerful as it is, lagging behind Alela and Corvald. Yeah, definitely really surprising. And we have to move on now to our next set because we've just got so many products to go through. So let's see what observations we can make about the next most popular commander from the next set, moving chronologically backwards. Dana, walk us through Commander 2019. Commander 2019, there are 16 total commanders to look at. The most popular, Joey's buddy on J Falconrath. Miss Angie, that's right. 757 decks. The least popular, Tangarth first mate in a mere 51 decks, although I guess it's better than uh, Sir Allen. <laughs> and, well, that's true of everything. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and the runner-up would be Crick, son of Yogmoth, in 713 decks, with a difference of 40 decks spread between that and Miss Angie. Come on, you can't say Crick, son of Yogmoth. It's it's not Kirk. like a river in, in South Virginia. It's Kirik. Come all on, right, come right. on. Kirik, uh, sorry. But yeah, we are seeing Angie Falconrath is 
I make fun of you for your pronunciation, then I go on and say, Angie, I know, I am a total hypocrite. I get it. Uh, But yeah, it is interesting to see the Madness Commander at the top of the heap compared to something as powerful as Kyrick, but also compared to some of the other exciting commanders that we got from the Commander 2019 set. I have to, again, register surprise that Angie Falconrath is the one that made it to the top spot. Uh, Yeah, I'm a little surprised as well. I I would have thought maybe one of the the Naya commanders would be up there. but again, she hits a lot of quadrants. Um, you know, it's it's the first really definite madness matters commander. She's a CEDH level commander. She's playable in that arena. She's just strong in general. She's probably a pretty good pub stomp commander if like you just want to beat people up without having to, you know, think maybe too deeply about it. Like you can build that deck where you have a pretty clear linear win condition if you just want to play hard. There's just a lot of things the deck does and it, it does kind of make sense. It's been pretty successful yeah and then we compare that to the last place commander tangarth first mate that is the gruel commander he's a 5-5 for four mana that when an opponent attacks an opponent tangarth can also jump into that battle i guess i can't be surprised that that one's at the bottom of the barrel not because it's combat focused but because it's another combat focused commander within the gruel slice of the color pie you've already got so many different options in gruel that can bash your opponents you know, having one more doesn't necessarily add something new to the conversation, even though the ability to jump into an opponent's attack step is pretty creative. Yeah, I don't think it's really compelling, like you said, Joey, compared to the rest of the field. What else does Gruul offer? Like, if you're going to play between Tangarth and, you know, say, Xenogod, you're probably going to play Xenagos. That's just, the power level is extremely out there. And that's not to say Tangarth isn't an interesting design, because it, it certainly is. I just don't think it's certainly compelling to a lot of players. Angie, right. on the other hand, Enya Falconrath, as I believe we, we <laughs> called her. Uh, yeah, she, she's very, very powerful. She's a little narrow, but a lot of the, the marquee commanders from Commander 2019, they were fairly narrow. Seeing Kyrick at second place, that does not surprise me at all. Kyrick is absurd, and I, I haven't even played a game with or against Kyrick to know it, this is just going to do some dumb, dumb, dumb things. Joey, <laughs> you, you played one game, was it, and, and gave up yeah. on Kyrick? I, I I built a Kyrick deck. I played one game with it, and I was just like, "Oh, people shouldn't be allowed to do this. I can't. I can't continue." Yeah, yeah. and so so seeing insane. that, it's it's not really surprising. I do agree. The the, the, the Naya commanders probably could have been a little bit more popular if I were going to predict it. Good thing we didn't make any of those wagers, <laughs> like we we did in our set reviews of your. Because I I definitely would put my money on any one of the the Naya commanders because they. They were doing something that in in my circles people were asking for a lot, so that is a little surprising yeah. to me. But seeing seeing Angie, seeing Kirik at the top, that that does not surprise me at all, though. Yeah, the the Angie still kind of surprises me, but there's a lot that's surprising me about a lot of these lists. So hearing that Joey is surprised is probably going to be a recurring theme. In fact, let's see if it continues on to our next set. That is Corset 2020. When we look at the top commanders from the 12 possible legendary creatures there, we begin with Golos Tireless Pilgrim. He's got 1,240 decks to his name. Again, that is the artifact commander that you may know from the standard deck that was gotten really popular with Field of the Dead before that card got banned. Golos goes and finds you any land, and then you can pay a bunch of mana including a spread from all five colors which makes it a five color deck so you can play three free cards off the top of your deck really powerful stuff going on there by contrast the least popular commander from corset 2020 is dracoseth maw of flames just a seven mana seven seven dragon that deals a bunch of damage when it attacks 
Again, another attacky kind of commander that we're seeing very, very low on the rungs here. Oh, and by the way, runner-up for Corset 2020, right behind Golos, we have Yarok the Desecrated at 1,138 decks. It's a difference of about 100 decks between Yarok and Golos, and again, Yarok is the Sultai commander that doubles your ETB triggers, sort of like a Panharmonicon, but as a commander. What do you guys think about that? Does this spread surprise you to see Golos at the top and Yarok in second place? Are there other commanders from Corset 2020 that you would have predicted in the top spot? What's your take? Um, it makes sense because Golos does a really, really unique thing, I think, for a five-color commander. I, I'm not surprised that those two are neck and neck. Those would be the two I would have thought would be competing for that slot. I wonder if the difference is Yarok is pretty linear and maybe... I don't know if I want to use the word easy, but it is kind of it has has a real clear build path, and you just accidentally get a whole ton of value. Whereas Golos does require you to kind of have a bit more of a plan. So I wonder if that's what puts over the top. It it is a little bit more challenging of a deck, and has maybe a few more builds as well. It's so funny that that you would say that Yarok is a bit more linear. To me, Yarok actually stands out as the commander that has more diversity because it can do something landfally or it can be a bunch of ETB stuff. Whereas Golos, I feel like the play patterns would have to be very, very similar because you need to ramp as hard as possible and then you want to cheat a bunch of really big spells, sort of omniscient style, using Golos's activated ability. It feels to me like Golos would be the one that's a bit more on rails, even though it's five colors and opens up more doors to different effects like that. Golos's play pattern seems a bit more streamlined compared to Yarok's diversity to me. So it's funny that you would have the opposite take. Well, in the Golos decks I've seen, I've seen them, you know, a Golos Mesa Zen deck. I've seen a Golos Valkut deck, um, just a gen generic gotcha. landfall deck. So, th so those tend to play a little bit differently, I think, those those variants. Um, so I, I think that's probably what it is for me, whereas Yarok, you can probably run different cards, but it's still trying to do the kind of the same thing with value on ETBs. Yeah. That makes sense. See, I... I I think Yarok would have been a little more popular, probably overtaking Golos, if it weren't competing with Moldrotha in that Sultai good stuff type mm. of build. I think that's probably one of the biggest detractors yeah. from Yarok is in Sultai colors, there's just a lot of competition for the the high power level. And I don't I don't mean this in a demeaning way. I know it's going to sound it, but just the generic good stuff type of builds. Yarok rewards you for doing just anything that you normally would be doing in Commander. Golos, I'm, I'm going to take Dana said with this. There's a, there's a few different build paths you can do. I think people, they like that it's kind of a legendary uh, Solemn Simulacrum. You can search up some lands. Yeah. You can do some over, you know, not overpowered, I would say. You can do some very splashy things with it. And I think that's probably what people are attracted to is you can do those big splashy plays. You can cheat. Oh my gosh, I cheated this 10 drop into play by only, you know, spending one of everything. Plus, Golos enables himself pretty well. Being able to search up lands, it fixes your mana. So I am not really surprised to see Golos at the top spot. I'm not surprised to see Drexeth at the bottom because, yeah, like we said, you just, if you need a stompy red commander, you can just reach into a box and grab something. So Drexeth, <laughs> yeah. as much competition as Yarak has with Moldrotha, Drexeth has so much more. Agreed. Absolutely. All right, let's move even farther back in time now. We're going to go to Modern Horizons. Dana, take it away. Modern Horizons has eight total commanders from the set. Uh, the most popular is Urza, Lord High Artificer, in 834 decks, followed up by Morphon the Boundless in 782 decks, a difference of 50 between the two of them. And the least popular is Pashlik Mons in a mere 45 decks. And again, if you don't remember what that commander does, 
that's probably okay. It's yeah. A red <laughs> Goblin that, what, 45 folks have built, and I think when it when your goblins die it does damage and it can also make some goblins i think that's something like what it does anyway yeah it's near the bottom as well sort of along the similar reasonings that we just saw for the other dragon dracoseth what do you guys make of urza being in the top spot though i mean we just spent some time talking about how the commanders that are extremely powerful don't necessarily always make it to the number one spot as we saw with like chulain or with kirik not being the number one commanders from their sets but here urza lord high artificer is in fact in the top spot what do you guys make of that I think the Urza, the Urza players probably would have been building Chu Lane decks, but they didn't want to spend money on their mana base, so they just played a broken monocolor commander instead of a broken wow. three color commander. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, Urza does something just very, very powerful and very, very well, and it's just it's of all the mono blue artifact matters commanders that we've seen over the past, I would say probably three years. You guys think? Yeah, Urza is probably the best. It gets out of hand the quickest. It turns all your inconsequential artifacts and do something very powerful. It turns them into mana rocks. And that's something that a lot of people, I think, might have just consolidated. You know, you have all of your, uh, what was the the mono blue legend that artifacts matter from Kaladesh block? Um, there was Psy Master Math- Thopterist. Yeah, that's, that's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, it was all the Psy. Psy Corset. I can't really remember. Yeah, all the, all the Psy Master Thopterist decks. All of the, just anything that was mono blue artifact matters. Probably even a lot of people that were playing um, the the artifact matter uh, Arkham Dagson Arkham Dagson yeah yes him yeah. a lot of people probably switched over to Urza because Urza to me is probably the most powerful of all of those variants and so I think a lot of decks might have consolidated into playing Urza Morphon it actually surprises me because Morphon enabled so many tribal decks that didn't have a good commander so it is a little surprising to see Morphon not being in the top spot because I'm surprised that effect did not happen with Morphon. Yeah, that's, and here Joey is surprised again, but Morifon and all of its diversity not being the number one commander from the set is also the kind of thing that was a little surprising to me. I had anticipated, I think when we went over the set review, I had personally predicted that maybe Cissé Weatherlight Captain would uh, take the top spot, and it's got a respectable 645 decks, and I thought that the flavor there would be something that really carries people forward, but I wonder if that's another point in Urza's favor. It's actually a very beloved character, whereas Morifon is something brand new, and it's also a weird gel moose thing looking like deal so like the epicness of urza as a character may also help give him that extra push in addition to the fact that it's very powerful i wonder if you know lore and flavor has an extra bit to to help people out in that regard too to make something a bit more popular i agreed totally like if you look at the pre-planeswalker as a card um era of magic i mean there's probably no name more recognizable than urza and even in today's environment for people who didn't play back then i would still say if you ask them to name a character from you know pre-mending from the old lore the old history of magic it would probably be urza like he is the character from old magic that people kind of associate with the game pre-jace belren um i think that probably does a lot of heavy lifting in terms of making that a popular commander yeah, the, the hype is contagious, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is also probably true for the top dog in our next set, War of the Spark. This is Feather the Redeemed commanding the top spot among the 16 total legendary creatures from War of the Spark. Feather the Redeemed, the amazing new Boris commander who has 1,397 decks to her name. Nearly 1,400 decks for this Boros commander, in addition to the fact that she's an amazing Boros commander that opened brand new doors in a pretty suffering color combination. She's also a lore character 
character that I personally have been so in love with for like 13 years or something that even if they had made a bad card for Feather, I probably would have built her. Lore definitely helps out those numbers in addition to the fact that she's also just so amazing as an ability. Her runner-up is a very substantial difference. We're looking at Niv Mizzet Reborn in second place from War of the Spark. He's got 776 decks, and that's a difference of about 600 decks between Niv Mizzet and Feather. And then in very last place is Tomic the Distinguished Advocate, 17 decks to his name, and this is a mono-white commander that doesn't let your opponents touch lands, and that's kind of about it. There are some clever interactions that you can do there, but compared to niv Reborn and Feather the Redeemed, not as exciting abilities, especially when Feather is opening brand new doors, in addition to having amazing artwork, in addition to the fact that she's such an awesome Angel Detective lore character. Ah, oh, guys, she's so beautiful, I can't stop gushing, I'm gonna need to stop talking now. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm sensing a theme in the last place decks, and this this will continue as a lot of the the least played commanders that you could be playing are mono white or mono red. Yeah. Granted, we, we yeah, break probably. that with Feather being a solid, almost doubling Niv Mizzet Reborn's numbers. That's a that's an enormous gap. That's the biggest that we've seen, and that's almost one of the biggest that we're going to see in this list. The gap actually, well. Not quite, honestly. The farther that we go, the numbers can get a bit more extreme than 600. But yes, it is definitely a very sizable difference compared to some of the other ones that we saw. And I think that has to do with how recent these new sets are. But we've got a couple of other summations once we go through all the lists that we'll get back to later. So sort of teasing something to come for now, let's focus on what's happening in War of the Spark. Feather the Redeemed at the top, Niv-Mizzet at the bottom. It's so strange to see Niv-Mizzet being closer to the 776 mark compared to some of the other commanders that we have that uh, are also in five colors, like Golos, who has like 1,200 to his name. It's so strange to see that dichotomy between commanders that are five colors, especially because the most recent one, you would expect him in a crowded field to have therefore less popularity, but he's breaking way far ahead of Niv-Mizzet. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of that is is that particular five-color Niv-Mizzet doesn't really suggest a deck to play around it. So I think if people, you know, are going to go through trouble of building a five-color deck, they maybe want to have a plan when they do that. I, I think Niv is a pretty decent card, but, he, number, but he's not amazing necessarily unless you're playing like a food chain combo or something. And if you're not doing that, I don't know if it really suggests a particular deck to build around it versus Feather, where you've got a real clear plan about what you're going to do once you put Feather atop your deck. Yeah, Niv-Mizzet yeah. Niv is so specific in how you have to build the deck. I think that's what discourages a lot of players, seeing that you can only get one card per guild combination. It's weird. I'm sure there's a lot of players out there, at least 776, maybe more, that enjoy that kind of a deck-building challenge. <laughs> but to me, that it's, it's a lot of hoops to jump through for not a guaranteed payoff, whereas... Yeah. When you compare it to Golos, Joey, like you were saying, Niv-Mizzet, it's it's a little too specific, if 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 that's a good way to put it. The the payoff with Golos, you just get to play a card for free or play a, a few cards for free because you're you're going over the top with everything. With Niv-Mizzet, you're getting into the hand, but you're not casting anything for free necessarily. So that, in my mind, is where Niv-Mizzet falls short, where Golos or, or some other five color commanders do succeed. 
Yeah, having some direction on a commander can definitely help, but Niv-Mizzet is in that weird place where he's a five-color commander and opens up every door available to you, which is really exciting, but also has a strange restriction that kind of closes some of those doors at the same time, which makes it a weird fine line to walk through. So maybe I shouldn't be too surprised that something like Golos would become a bit more appealing as a result, because he has a lot less of those self-imposed restrictions in the ways that we see Niv-Mizzet. I still like Niv-Mizzet's abilities. I think that it's really cool for it to give you a bunch of cards off the top of your deck for each guild based off of that. I do think it's weird that, like, I don't know, in the lore, I'm not actually sure how Niv-Mizzet died in the first place to be reborn in that story, but, uh, you know, that's a separate thing. I'm really just too in love with Feather to take my eyes off of anything else from that set. So, Feather, I'm so glad that you're in the top dog spot for War of the Spark. You're so cool. Let's move on now to <laughs> Ravnica Allegiance. Matt, go ahead and take us through it. All right, well, Ravnica Allegiance, there's only eight possible commanders coming out of this set. Tasek Arlov takes the top spot with 1,545 decks, quite a few there. Second place is an actually bigger gap than we just talked about. Nikia of the Old Ways. Second place, only 524 decks. Over a thousand decks difference. And then coming in last place, Zagana, Utopian Speaker. It's not broken, but it's in Simic, so nobody wants to play it. <laughs> People love playing Simic, Matt. But it's not broken. It's not a broken Simic commander. That's why there's only 68 decks to Zagana's name. Yeah, Zagana, talk about a crowded field. There are so many things that can do so many powerful things in Simic that it really isn't surprising to see Zagana, who does a couple of things with that pseudo-monstrous ability, giving some counters and trample to creatures with counters, compared to some of the other stuff that we have available to us, including things like Tatiova or Thrasios and all of them. It really shouldn't be too surprising to see a Simic commander finally in the bottom slot compared to its many contemporaries. Tessa Karlov, I'm ecstatic for her to be in the number one spot at Ravnica Allegiance, and I am not shocked to see her there either. It is a pretty small field with only eight total legends from that set, but some of the other commanders like Nikia just didn't seem to have as much diversity as Tessa did with her doubling death triggers and her, you know, extra enhancements to token creatures. She does quite a lot of stuff and it's a very brand new effect for that color pair too. Yeah, I mean, she's strong. It's a it's a brand new effect for that color pair. She's a very beloved lore character, getting her third crack at a card. Again, talking about hitting multiple quadrants, this is just one more of those commanders that, that hits a bunch of different things and makes it an interesting commander for a bunch of different groups of people. Yeah, absolutely. We move on now to Guild of Ravnica, which also has eight total commanders, and this one is helmed by a commander that, Matt, as I understand it, you have personally built. I have. I've actually built the top two commanders in both of these sets, but Guilds of Ravnica, eight total commanders, like you said, Niv-Mizzet Perrin taking in the top spot, 1,524 decks, quite a few, another big gap going down to Amara, Soul of the Accord, only 521 decks, and that's for second place. And then in last place with 98 decks is Tristani Discordant. Which... It's so funny to see a decent amount of popularity for Amara, 521, isn't anything to scoff at. It isn't Niv-Mizzet Perun, new version of Niv-Mizzet getting to draw you a bunch of cards, 1500 decks, that's crazy. But Amara seemed to definitely take a lot of attention away from Trasani Discordant because they are both green-white commanders that make tokens from the same set. They'd be competing regardless of any other commanders in that set and their popularity. Yeah, and we kind of talked about it in our set review too. Amara Soul of the Court is almost a budget Reese the Redeemed. It's a very mm. it's a, a cheaper version of a, a a very cheap mana cost wise commander that cares a lot about tokens. Tristani Discordant five mana and Tristani Discordant makes a very big impact. I play both Tristani and Amara in my Miri deck, but I I could see why people don't want to play Tristani Discordant because there that is another crowded field of green white tokens, especially when Amara is doing that. 
in a little bit of a more unique way. So that's not really surprising to see Trostani Discordant so low. But Niv-Mizzet, Perrin, I think we should talk about how stout those numbers are because Niv-Mizzet is the best. You know, that's another card that he got his third version of a card. And this one is definitely the most powerful. It's similar to Taysa Karlov where it's just, it's doing something just out of this world powerful. There's infinite combos. You can play control, very punishing for other players to do anything. So it's not surprising at all that Niv-Mizzet is the number one played commander from Guilds of Ravnica. Yeah, well, like I, we see with that Niv-Mizzet ability, he deals damage when you draw cards and he also makes you draw a lot of cards whenever people play non-creature spells. That's a really gross effect. Well, I think the comment I made when we did the review of the set about Niv-Mizzet was I said, it's a good card, but are people going to take apart their existing Niv-Mizzet decks or, or make a new one or, tra- or, or, or convert it over just to get another similar version of Niv-Mizzet? And the answer is apparently yes when it's a better <laughs> when it's a better version of Niv Mizzet because um, this is probably yeah. the better of the three. I mean, they're all three very similar cards, but this is the better of the three. And I think a lot of people that had a Niv Mizzet deck just converted their deck to this one, which was something mm-hmm. I wasn't sure they were going to do. And I'm guessing that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense to me too. All right, moving farther back in time, we're now on Commander 2018. There were 16 total commanders from Commander 2018, but the one that put itself to the top is my buddy Lord Wingrace. Nearly 2,000 decks, 1,996 to be exact, and that is followed up by the runner-up Eureka Tiger's Shadow. There's a difference of about 200 decks between them. There's uh, 1,722 decks to Eureka Tiger's Shadow's name. So those are the two top dogs in Commander 2018, but unfortunately the one at the lowest rung on the ladder is Thanos Urza's Apprentice. He's only got 89 decks to his name, and he's a blue-red artifact double-trigger kind of person, which just isn't nearly as exciting as the brand new prospect of Jund Lands that Lord Windgrace invited to the format, and the amazing prospect of ninjas in Demir that Eureka was also able to provide. So it's really not too shocking to see that he's very low while those folks are extremely high up the list. Windgrace and Eureka are pretty close, though, for a set that's, that's that old. And I would be curious to see where this one is down the road. Um, you know, we mentioned we did just get Korvald, who does, if you want to play a landfall deck, you can kind of do the same thing, maybe better than Windgrace in those same colors. Um, we are going to go back to Zendikar here in the fairly near future, and it wouldn't surprise me to see us get more landfall type commanders in that set as well. So we will probably get some competition for that slot from Windgrace, whereas Eureka may not get a ninja commander competition for a long, long time. I'll I'll just be curious to see what those numbers look like in a year or two years and if Eureka has maybe raced ahead of Windgrace. Hmm, Good observation. And actually, Eureka also, as far as I can recall, kind of broke tradition from what we would usually see in previous commander sets. Very typically, the precon effect had a dominating effect on commander products that would almost always result in the face commanders, sort of the Atraxas that we would always see, you know, the Lord Windgraces, uh, the Ur-Dragon, the thing that we see at the front of the box. Traditionally, they've always been the ones that took the top spots in these commander sets. Eureka was one of the major breakouts from that set because she bypassed Amanatsu, you know, the commander whose deck she originally came in. And that's pretty unprecedented throughout most of the data that we've been seeing before that point. I think that that's pretty interesting to see. And it really shows how much people wanted their Demir ninjas. And I think yeah. one thing that was worth that's worth mentioning on that note, too, is Commander 2018 was when they actively said, 
yes, we are going to make these secondary commanders more compelling. They made Zancha, they made uh, several other commanders that weren't maybe the marquee commanders in that box, but they still were very impactful and they were they were kind of carving out their own role. They weren't trying to force it into working with the main overarching theme of the deck. So yeah, it, it is worth noting that Eureka is the, the first one to kind of set the precedent when it comes to secondary commanders, but not secondary as far as popularity. What's also funny about this particular set, I'm kind of personally sad to see that the Is It Artifact commanders end up being pretty middling to low in the popularity sphere for these, because at that point in time, we had been so, 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 so hungry for an Is It Artifact-based commander, but we had just gotten one from Dominaria, which we will get to here in a moment. Dominaria had given us Joyra to sort of satiate our desire for an Is It Artifact commander that we hadn't had for a long time. Then came out Commander 2018, which gave us Sahili and Brutaclad and Thanos, but by that point, our desires had already been sort of sated. So it is funny to me, if those had been in the opposite order, I really bet that Thanos and Sahili would have been a lot more popular than they ended up being. So it's just funny to see the way that temporally popularity was affected that way. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on now to Core Set 2019. Dana, walk us on through it. Core 2019, 10 total commanders. The first place commander right now is Arcades the Strategist in 1,568 decks. The runner-up, Nicol Bolas the Ravager in 1,127 decks, a difference of 400. And last place, the mono-white Lena Selfless Champion in a mere 21 decks. Wait, wait, you're telling me that the Bont Defender Commander became really popular because it was new, and Nickel Wallace the Ravager, the Grixis Amazing Flavor Lore Person, became really popular because it was an amazing Grixis Flavor Lore Person, but the Mono White Commander that doesn't do something very interesting didn't become popular? I am shocked. That is seemingly how it, it sh has shaken down, yes. <laughs> I frankly am the least surprised by everything that we're seeing here. Arcades was very, very new and very, very powerful in that ability. Nicole Bolas is a really cool story uh, character, but it isn't necessarily as impressive as some of the other stuff we already have going on in Grixis compared to Arcades opening a brand new door for defenders in that color slice. I'm not surprised to see these particular commanders in the order that they're already arranged. Nope. Yeah. Zero surprise whatsoever. I, I think there was a lot of hype around Arcades when it was first revealed, so... Yeah, I 100% I agree with everything you guys have just said. Yeah. <laughs> hey, a Bont commander that draws cards. Arcades was laying foundation for Tulane, maybe? Question mark. Conspiracy theory <laughs> on the wall. Any, let's move on to our next set. Matt, how about you take us on through Battle Bond? Battle Bond. That one had eight total commanders. This one was a little weird because it is it is kind of hard for us to measure partners, which we'll get to here in a second. But the most popular commander from Battle Bond is Najila the Blade Blossom, 1,350 decks, the five-color warriors, tribal, get all sorts of silliness going on commander there. Coming in at second place, Peer and Toothy, the Simic Partner commanders right there, 537 decks, so a, a decent gap of about 800 decks or so. Coming in at last place, you guys want to guess the colors? Yes, there's two of them because it's Boros. Sylvia yeah. and Corvath, only 170 decks, womp womp. Boros in last place again, which kind of stinks, but oh well. Yeah. 
Yeah, they didn't innovate in quite the same way that Feather did later on. But at the same time, you did note that there is sometimes a difficulty for EDHREC to actually gather data and scrape it from deck building sites when there are partner commanders in charge. That just becomes a little difficult given the algorithms that run the website. So I actually think it could easily be the case that a deck like Pure and Toothy could have more than just the 537 decks that we currently see, and that someone like Sylvian Corvath might actually have more than just the 170 that we're able to actually pull, just because it is pretty difficult for the site to occasionally find the decks that are genuinely partner decks. That is just sometimes a bit more difficult. So it could be that there's actually more than these in particular, but it also kind of lines up with what we'd expect. Najila was amazingly popular. Pirantuthi is really, really cool. Folks usually aren't too excited by Boros doing some typical Boros things, still having a lot of its similar weaknesses. So this spread isn't too surprising, even assuming that we are having a little bit of difficulty finding partner data. Well, and one interesting thing too is even as we're saying that about the partner decks, how it's a little harder to scrape, the gap between the second place commander with Pier and Toothy being in 537 decks is actually fairly narrow compared to the last place decks with Sylvian Corvath, you know, 537 decks for Pier and Toothy compared to 170. We talk about the last few sets. Second place was Nicol Bolas at, you know, 1100 decks compared to Lena with 21 or Eureka yeah. with 1700 decks and then Taunus with only 89. So the gap between last place and second place is actually fairly narrow for battle bonds. So which kind of, to me, shows out that, you know, this is a fairly competitive set when it comes to how popular the commanders are overall. Yeah, well, and actually another interesting point about this, one of the other commanders from Battlebond, whose decks we would have no difficulty scraping at all, would be Grothama. Grothama All Devouring actually only has 181 decks to its name, and remember that's the worm that you can fight sort of like a Baron Nasher replica, where you can go raid it and then draw a bunch of cards when it dies. That one's got 181 decks, that's just barely more than Sylvia and Corvath, and we don't have much difficulty scraping data for a deck that only has one commander, so I actually wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot more Sylvia Corvath decks out there than there are Grothama decks. And don't tell Benny Smith, former guest, right. commander <laughs> yes. aficionado, he is the biggest champion of Grothama I've ever met in my life, so don't tell him that he's getting beat out by the, the Boros partners. Not officially, given the data, Not but officially. potentially. Potentially. Sorry, Benny. I know that you like Grothama. That thing is pretty darn nasty, actually. When I played against Andrew Cummings' Grothama deck, that thing did stuff I did not anticipate coming out of that deck. It was <laughs> exceptionally gross, which, you know, given the art on Grothama, seems basically par for the course, I suppose. All right, we're moving on now to Dominaria. Dana, I know how much you love this historic set, so please walk us through Dominaria. I do indeed love Dominaria. 44 total commanders! So many legendary That's insane. Number one among them, with a bullet, Moldrotha the Gravetide in 3,337 decks. That's nuts. Uh, Number two would be Joda Archmage Eternal in 1,797 decks. A 1,200 deck difference between Moldrotha and Joda. And in the last place, Mono Red Varix Bladewing in six decks. Not surprising to see Varix at the bottom, just like we saw Dracoseth at the bottom. Definitely not surprising to see Muldroth of the Gravetide at the top with 3037. That is absolutely bonkers. And the popularity of Joda is actually pretty interesting there. Nearly 1800 decks for Joda. I mean, 
Golos is about, what, it was 1,200 when we looked at it? So these five-color commanders do have a niche that makes them exceptionally popular. We also just saw with Najila the Blade Blossom, technically a five-color commander from Battlebond. These things have quite the niche that they are definitely appealing to. Yeah, I mean, Joda is a pretty good uh, kind of universal key piece for whatever deck you want to build in five colors. It doesn't do that Morphon thing where it buffs a tribe or something, but like if you have a certain theme you want to do, I want to build five color planeswalkers or you know, I want to do five color curses or something like anything you would want to do, being able to cast a thing for five mana if you have the, the correct color spray is fairly useful. Like it's it's just always going to provide you value for the most part in whatever deck you choose to build around it. It's it's just almost always helpful. And again, these commanders really lean into that diversity, that versatility that you guys yeah. mentioned when we were looking at some of the top commanders from when we very first started this. Yeah, Joda gives you a lot, a very omnidirectional commander. You can do a whole bunch of different things with it. Sort of supposes that you want to play really big expensive spells, but you have so many options within the five color sphere. Muldrotha the Gravetide also gives you a lot of options to do with that because you're able to get so many different types of things back from your graveyard. It can be very grindy. It can also be very controlly. It can be very, very good. My younger brother has a Persistent Petitioner's Muldrotha deck based off of the one that I built when we had a Muldrotha competition, uh, excuse me, a Persistent Petitioner's competition, and he was just like, hey, that's a cool idea, let's go with that. Like, Muldrotha provides you quite a lot of versatility as well, so we really can't be surprised to see that those were the commanders from this set that had 44 total legends. Those, of course, they were going to rise to the top, especially because that versatility is so powerful among them. Well, and it should be noted too, Muldrotha just isn't the most popular commander in Dominaria, one of the most popular commanders of all time, and especially in the past two years when we kind of did our data purge of all the unupdated decks. So Muldrotha is just insanely popular. One of the, like, I'm sure we can look back in a few years even, and Muldrotha will still stand out as kind of one of those timeless commanders that has just held its own, her own, Muldrotha's own. Her own. Her own, yeah. So I, I'm not really surprised. Muldrotha was the first of the overpowered good stuff simic or excuse me sultai commanders so compelling even that i even built a deck with black in it <laughs> i wouldn't even necessarily call moldrotha overpowered it doesn't really reach the levels of for example competitive uh edh but moldrotha definitely provides you such a degree of value that it can be very difficult to keep up with speaking of that type of value though Tatiova is also from Dominaria, and that's a commander that rewards you for landfall drawing you a bunch of cards, which we've noted, I think, in joking terms a couple of times on our show, that Tatiova's a little ridiculous with how much value she gives you just for playing lands. And then also Droyra was from this set, Slimefoot was from this set. We actually have quite a lot of very cool commanders from the set that sit in sort of 1300 to 1100 uh, deck popularity sphere. There's a lot of stuff that was going on from this set, but again, Muldrotha's versatility really made that one stand out compared to the Joyra artifacts or the Slimefoot Sapperlings or the Tatiova Landfall. Muldrotha just had a couple more directions that it was able to go, which really helped boost those numbers. Yeah, yeah. Do Dominaria, we, we're gonna, there's a point that we're going to talk about about creative capital. That was definitely pushed to the max when it comes to Dominaria. There were so many awesome commanders. I think people just forgot about a good number of them. 
Right, definitely. Okay, so we're moving near the end of our list. We've got Rivals of Ixalan next. There were nine total commanders from Rivals of Ixalan, but the one that took the top spot was Kumena, Tyrant of Orazka. This one had 881 decks to its name, and there was a pretty decent runner-up right behind it, actually. That's Zakama Primal Calamity, the Naya crazy storm thing going on with that three-headed dino. This one had 757 decks to its name, so that's a difference of about 120 decks between the Naya Dino and the Kamena Merfolk Tribal in blue and green. In last place, though, this is really no shocker, Tetsamok Primal Calamity only had 12 decks in Rivals of Ixalan, and Tetsamok is a commander that actually works better if it can be in your hand, because it puts counters on things when you reveal it from your hand, and since it has to start the game in the command zone, that can make it a lot more awkward to build, so it didn't really fit well into the commander format. In addition to it being monocolored, it also had another couple of hoops to jump through, so there were a few things that tended to work against its favor there, compared to Kamena the Merfolk Tribal and Zakama the Naya Dino. Yeah, I mean, Kamena's probably, if you're gonna build Merfolk, probably the best option out there. It solves a lot of the problems that Merfolk had in terms of closing out games, just by virtue of being in green, uh, just having access to overruns and stuff, did a lot of work there for Merfolk. It's just attractive in a bunch of different ways. Zakama, I, I wonder if the casting cost doesn't scare people away a little bit there as well. But, I mean, I, I'm not at all shocked to see Kamena at number one. This is funny, though. I mean, we mention a lot that versatility plays a big, important factor in, you know, making a commander popular. But a tribal deck tends to be a bit more on rails. So it's funny that Kamena would take the top spot here when that is definitely a tribal commander. I think the thing that helps Kumana out the most in this situation is Kumana was the first legendary merfolk after Wizards of the Coast kind of shifted that merfolk color from blue and white in the Lorwyn block to blue mm -hmm. and green. And so when Kumana gave that some, some power and you were able to play that in a commander deck, a lot of players were drawn to that compared to Zakama, which is competing with another commander that we're going to talk about here in a second, just being a big legendary dinosaur that... <laughs> does some big dinosaur-y things. Yeah, that's another thing to definitely point out. Sort of like you mentioned with Yarok competing with Muldrotha, well, Zakama was competing with Gishath. Gishath came from Ixlan, which had seven total commanders there. And technically, Ixlan was September of 2017, so it's outside of the two-year mark, but whatever, we'll still count Ixlan. Uh, Gishath came in at a whopping 1,922 decks for the Naya Dino Tribal, specifically Dino Tribal uh, commander there. So Zakama at 757, really, it can't be too much of a surprise because it was competing with nearly 2,000 decks for Gishoth. From Ixalan also, we had Pirate Tribal. This became the second place commander from Ixalan. Admiral Beckett Brass, the Grixis Pirate, had 820 decks. That's a difference, by the way, of about 1,100 decks between Gishoth and Admiral Beckett Brass. So not all tribals are necessarily... Uh, created equal, I suppose, because Gishoth took off way faster than Pirate Tribal did. In last place, by the way, from Ixlan, we had the mono-white vampire Mavern Fane Dusk Apostle. Only nine decks there. No one is really surprised. But yeah, like you mentioned, Matt, Zakama had to compete with Gishoth, and so it really isn't a surprise that one Naya Dino sort of had to fight with the other for popularity, which meant that one of them got way bigger numbers than the other one ever could. Yep, and, and then it's not really surprising to see Admiral Beckett Brass, there, there's not really any legendary pirate tribal enablers. Mavern Fane, in addition to being mono-white in a very specific and not traditionally white tribe, Mavern Fane is 
fantastic in a vampire tribal deck. Every Edgar Markov deck probably needs to be playing one because it just helps churn out even more bodies. At the head of its own deck, your options are very, very limited in what you put in the 99, though. So not really surprising as, you know, we're kind of unanimous with, I, I guess you could say, as far as the last place decks. But yeah, Gishath, as far as dinosaur tribal goes, which is something that every player, I'm sure, out there saw something about dinosaur tribal was like, okay, eight-year-old me loves this. So there, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of that effect of, you know, people just, it, it tickled the, or tugged at the heartstrings of a lot of different players. So Gishath, it, it's not surprising at all to see that as popular as it is. So now that we've gone over the sets from the past two years, I kind of want to note how the differences between the runner-ups is very small for the most recent sets. You know, they were in sort of the 40s and 50s when we looked at the difference between Alela and Corvold and stuff like that. But after about a year or so, the differences between the first place commander and the second place commander was much more exaggerated in the hundreds and sometimes even thousands. And that's pretty interesting stuff to note. It doesn't mean that Corvold and Alila are necessarily always going to be neck and neck. As time goes on, those differences become a lot more exaggerated. In fact, when we were collecting data for this show, we took note of the high and low commanders from each one of them. But then we had to push the show back a little bit. And so we came back to that data to measure it again about five days later, recollect, make sure that this was as recent as it could be. But we'd gotten more decks in that interim time, and all the top commanders had probably 10 to 20 more decks to them, but none of the last place commanders from any of these sets had any new decks. Literally none of them. From the past two years, none of those last place commanders had new data. Like, that just kind of goes to show you how these differences over time will become a lot more exaggerated because those top commanders continue to continue running on super, super fast, but the stuff that is a little bit left behind stays left behind. So that's kind of a thing that I wanted to note here is just that the data will become different for those recent sets. Stuff is going to shift around and those differences may become a lot more exaggerated as we're seeing with the older sets that we just looked at. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> we can talk about how there's a lot of competition at the top. There's even more competition at the bottom. There, There's no shortage of obscure random commanders that don't translate very well to commander. So, yeah, it's not surprising to see all these decks that maybe had 10, 10 decks to their name. It's not surprising that they're staying down there because yeah. if you want to forget about something, there's somebody that there's another commander you're going to out forget if that <laughs> if that makes sense. I also want to move into some other general observations about this stuff, too. So, you know, for example, which was the most popular commander printed within the past two years? Well, we got to that one. It was definitely Muldrotha at the 3037 decks. What was the least popular commander printed in the past two years? Sir Allen took that title with only two decks. But again, that's just the least popular one so far. This is a very new set. So it could actually end up being the case that maybe people will build more Sir Allen decks. It probably may not happen, but it actually could. And so another, just another thing to note there that recency does affect some of this data that we're looking at. The biggest difference between runner-ups when we look at the first place commander to the second place commander, that big difference was for Muldrotha versus Joda. There was a total of 1,240 decks between Muldrotha's 3,000 and Joda's nearly 1,800. 
And the closest race, like we noted, was Alila versus Korvold. Only 37 lists are different between those two commanders in first and second place from Throne of Eldraine. But again, I just wanted to touch on the fact that this data may shift around a lot as time passes, because that tends to be what we see. So we have to keep an eye on this in the future, because it is going to be very fascinating to see the way that data seems to exaggerate itself as time passes into the differences of hundreds, if not thousands. I also want to touch a little bit on what the top commanders have in common and what the bottom commanders have in common. Let's talk about the least popular commanders first. Dana, what are some of the things that we are observing about what the least popular commanders tend to have in common? They tend to be white or red or a combination <laughs> of those two things. Unfortunately, that is true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's six uh, of the 13 least popular commanders. Six are white, six are red, followed by three green, two blue, and one black. That's a pretty stark difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. But when we compare the most popular commanders, we've got a very even spread, actually. Seven are white, eight are blue, seven are black, seven are red, and seven are green. So at the top dog list, the colors have a very even spread. But when it comes to least popular commanders... Definitely not the same thing that we're seeing there. Also of interesting note, it's not just necessarily the colors, but also the fact of their, you know, monocolored or multicoloredness. You know, usually the red or the white commanders are going to be at the bottom of the barrel, but interestingly, only one of the most popular commanders from all of the past sets was monocolored, which was Urza. But eight of the least popular commanders that we saw from the past uh, two years' worth of sets were monocolored. That's also an interesting thing to note out. It's not just what colors they are, but how many colors they have that might influence whether they become very popular or not very popular. Now let's turn to what the most popular commanders from each set have in common. We touched on a lot of these points originally, but there are some main pillars, I would say, about what makes a commander extremely popular. So the big three points that we took away from going through this list about what makes a commander popular at least helps. The three big points that we can probably point to are versatility, power level, and innovation. And it's it's a little hard to measure specifically what that means, but we'll try to give that some context here. So versatility is being able to do multiple different things and doing it well. Moldrotha, we talk about how it's kind of generic good stuff, but it does so many different things and it does them all very well. You can do infects, you can do landfall, you can do artifacts, you can do per persistent partitioners. The, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things you've been doing with a lot of these commanders. Taysa Karlov either is a death harmonicon and it doubles all your death triggers, or you have a token ability. Feather, you have all sorts of different things. We did a brew off even. We had three very distinct <laughs> ways that you can take a feather deck. And then, you know, sure, they were all taking advantage of a specific commander, but they all were doing very different things. Joey was recurring cast triggers. I was kind of doing a Voltron push everything through. And then who knows what Dana was doing with his enter the battlefield triggers. And I, it was something silly, but it was fun seeing how very, very different and stark, even something like feather can be doing. And the other point is power level, just how overall powerful at face value is a card. We talked about Corvold being just insanely powerful at face value. Same with Alila, same with a lot of these different ones. Urza from modern horizons has more decks because it's just such an absurdly powerful card. And finally, we have innovation. Is it opening new doors? Is it doing something that has not been done before? We talked with Alila. Esper Fairies wasn't really possible until Alila added white to what was traditionally a blue-black tribe or dinosaur tribal with Gishath, Bant Defenders with Arcades. There's all these innovative types of ways that you can push the, the envelope a little bit when you know you compare it to 
Pashalik Mons or, or Tangarth, who just, like we said, is gruel legendary creature that just it goes into combat like every other gruel legendary creature. So it's innovation, power level, and then versatility are those those three main take-home points that we kind of narrowed it down to. But we also have to keep in mind that none of these can be necessarily considered in isolation. We saw a couple of cases where these, you know, pillars are contradicted just a little bit. They can't be the only ingredient, basically. For example, we saw tribal commanders. Those are a bit more limited than some of the non-tribal commanders from their very same sets. Kumena beat out Zakama, for example, and Arcades is possibly more linear with all of its defenders than Nicol Bolas from Corset. And so the versatility can sometimes be impacted by that. Power level also, you know, Miss Angie Falconrath has played as a competitive combo engine and Urza's really powerful. But then again, we've noted before on this podcast that Tesa Karlov left Prime Speaker Vanifar in the dust, but we all considered Prime Speaker Vanifar to be you know, very, very powerful because of the amazing birthing pod chains that it's able to do. Also, Alila is actually faring better than Chulain and Corvold right now, so power level can't be the only ingredient you consider. And also, when it comes to innovation, the most, quote, original designs aren't always rewarded with popularity. Niv-Mizzet's crazy powerful, but he's sort of doing stuff that we had seen previous Niv-Mizzet's doing. Xantia and Bruticlad are wildly creative, but in terms of popularity from their sets, they were a bit more middle of the pack. So it really can't be that you consider any one of these pillars in isolation. A very good mix of all three is definitely what it seems that you would need for a commander to push itself all the way to the top spot. Because there are small cases where each one of them can be, you know, can have an exception. But when you get a combination of all three of those, when a commander is innovative and powerful and versatile, that's when you seem to have a real, real winner. Yeah, I mean, the, the more boxes the commander can check, the more popular it tends to be, for sure. We also touched on, Matt, I know that you had mentioned it earlier, creative capital. And we just kind of wanted to remind folks about the concept of creative capital. The idea that players only have so much, I guess the word would be bandwidth, that they're able to devote to building a new deck from any given set or within any period of time. And that's just kind of interesting. Some of the mid-tier popular commanders from one set when you think about it, could actually have been the most popular commander if they had been in another set. And I kind of want to say that again. A commander that came from something like Dominaria, there were so many legends from that set that it might have been overshadowed. But if it had come from a different set with only eight possible legendary creatures, it might have gotten the opportunity to shine. Tashar, Ancestor's Apostle, stands out to me as a really underrated commander from Dominaria that really could have blown us all away if it had come in a different set. This also kind of works the other way too. If the is it Niv Mizzet had been in the same set as Feather the Redeemed, Feather might have actually buried the is it Niv Mizzet in terms of popularity. But given the way that the set's actually released, Feather was released in the same set with the five color Niv Mizzet Reborn, so she ended up burying him in terms of popularity instead. You know, the temporal allocation of popularity is definitely important. So. It, when looking at the popularity of these commanders, it isn't always about power level or originality, but also sometimes where they came from as well, because where they arrived can also influence how much creative capital we were able to devote to them. Yep. And I think Dominaria was the that peak of where it was really put to the test because there's there's not that there aren't powerful commanders in every single set, because there certainly are, but Dominaria, and then I would say that the precons as well, those are when some just great commanders that would have really had a chance to shine if they were in a subpar set commander-wise, they kind of get pushed out because there's so many other bigger and splashier things that are going on. We, we, and we, you know, commander players 
and magic players in general, we like to compare things to what we already know. So maybe sometimes, you know, we see a, a powerful Bant commander and we think, oh, this is just another another one. So Chulain's just next to the bunch. And with Arcades, there isn't a lot of things that we can compare a com- uh, Defender Matters commander to. So I've got one last sort of series of questions that I want to ask you guys about the data that we just looked over, the popular commanders, the unpopular commanders from the past two years worth of sets. Is there any commander that surprises you that is in the number one spot or maybe a commander from one of those sets that you think should be in the number one spot that isn't? Or I guess on top of that, is there any commander that you think actually will overtake the commander in the number one spot? We saw some close races with Corvold and Alila, for example. There are some commanders that are sort of neck and neck coming up here, especially in those recent sets. Do you think that any of those runner-up commanders might actually become number one? Are there any other things that you're surprised to see in number one that you think could be or should be displaced? Where are you at with some of these number one commanders now that we've zoomed out and taken a look at all of them? I'm a little surprised to see Miss Angie at number one among Commander 2019 decks, and I would bet that gets paced by Kirik or or something at some point in the next, say, calendar year. I, I've just played enough games against the deck to see how just completely linear it is um, mm. and really goldfishy, and I just don't know how many people are going to keep that deck together or is it going to, I don't think it's going to inspire many people who play against it to want to build one of their own either. There are powerful decks that you can watch someone play and then think, oh, I want to do that same thing. Angie is just so goldfishy that I, I, I don't think that even the strength of it is going to motivate other people to brew that thing up. So I, I would bet that one gets bumped out here at some point in the next year or so. Interesting. Matt, what about you? I think Dana made a really good point about Lord Windgrace and just commanders in general that might have decks pirated by something new, some of the new hotness that comes out. So Corvold comes out, likely steals a few Land Matters decks from Lord Windgrace. So it narrows that gap between Lord Windgrace and Rico Tiger Shadow, which may not have a whole lot of competition when it comes to, oh, is there going to be a new Ninja Matters type of tribal deck? So stuff like Arcades a Strategist. Defender Matters is a little more narrow than just, oh, it's a big Grixis dragon. So those are the types of commanders I would look to maintain their their iron fist around their throne compared to somebody like Lord Windgrace, who's going to have something taken away. Feather, for example, has a lot of staying power in Boros Colors and War of the Spark because it's doing something more unique than Niv-Mizzet Reborn. Those are the commanders to me that I would keep an eye out and, and predict to have a longer reign at the top. As far as commanders that I th- think should be number one, Dominaria has it all wrong. Valduck should be number one. There's no question about it. <laughs> there's there's 3,000 wow. Moldrotha players who don't know what they're saying, and I am one of them. So... <laughs> so. <laughs> I know that you're a Valduck fanboy, Matt, but, you know, well, I guess... I am I am a fanboy. I guess boy. I can't... I, I, I can admit that, yes. I, I think Valduck is probably going to be long-term a very po- popular mono-red commander. That's not really saying much as we've established a few times today. So, um, <laughs> But as far as what should be number one, Feather, there's no reason that Feather won't be number one as far as Boros commanders go for a long, long time, I think. 
Yeah, well, and that's just it. We just looked at commanders that were number one within the most uh, recent sets, but there's also the commanders within color combinations. There's a lot of different lenses that we can use when we're observing popularity, and this is just one among many, and we want to see what patterns we can find which will help inform the decks that we receive in future sets. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, and it's really fascinating to interrogate the data that we find here because there's so many cool lessons that you can learn from it. Which leads us on to our closing segment, Challenge the Stats. I actually am going to take a leaf out of John Dunning's book on our last episode, and I've decided that I'm going to be challenging the stats on the popularity of a commander from Dominaria because I think it is being underplayed. I'm talking about Tashar, Ancestor's Apostle. I had mentioned it earlier, but I do think that this is a fascinating mono-white commander that kind of got buried because of how many 44 possible legends there were from Dominaria. As a reminder, Tashar, Ancestor's Apostle is a 4-mono mono-white bird cleric. It's a 2-2 with flying that says whenever you cast a historic spell, you return target creature card with converted mana cost 3 or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. And as a reminder, historic spells are artifacts, legendaries, and sagas. This is a really excellent form of card advantage for Mono White because it returns stuff from your graveyard to the battlefield and it is all built around a very fascinating artifact style shell to take advantage of that historic trigger. This is a really cool commander, but it only has 269 decks. It got kind of shunted a little bit to the side because of how much was going on from that set. But like I said earlier, I do think that if Tashar had shown up in a different set, we all would have probably gone a bit more wild for it because it would have had a bit more room to breathe. So. Take a look at that commander if you want to see what Mono White can do. It may actually surprise you because of how much it really can do. It just didn't get as much room to breathe as it needed to really flourish. Yeah, I really like that challenge, Joey. I've been a big fan of Tashar. I wrote an article about taking Kart Clan Ironworks into Tashar. Uh, it's it's a very, very cool effect that you don't really see in the command zone, especially for Mono White. So I do agree that that's a very, very good challenge. And I'm sure that your challenge of stats will be Valdok also from Dominaria doesn't have enough I already play did that. I don't need to devote a special <laughs> spot. That That's just in my heart. All right, Matt, what is your challenge this week? So my challenge of stats is in a Kenrith Returned King decks. There's only 337 of these out so far. Uh, it's the buy a box promo for Throne of Eldraine. Five colors, but it's uh, four and a white for casting costs. And it has five different abilities, but I'm going to focus in on one of them specifically because of how it pairs with Willbender. So, Kenrith has the ability of one in a green to put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. But if you guys have ever read Willbender, which it probably hasn't happened a little bit, but Willbender is a human wizard for three blue-blue and says, whenever a creature an opponent controls becomes the target of a spell or ability you control, gain control of that creature for as long as you control Willbender. Only 11% of the Kenrith decks are playing Willbender, and I think that is terribly low because that's basically you put Willbender out, two and a green, steal a creature, sacrifice it if you want to, get rid of it, but it's just a great ability, and it's any creature. Um, it's not limited on Kenrith, so you can just steal everybody's board for as much as you have mana for. I need to jump in really quick. Willbender is a creature that has a morph ability. I think you mean Will Breaker. Will Breaker. Oh my. It's always Willbender. <laughs> It's always Willbender. <laughs> but yes, Will Breaker. I, I am always sorry, will. everybody. Will Breaker. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my notes, they're not good today. Your notes. My, they, Your those notes. are my notes, yes. Uh, but yes, Will Breaker is the card that I'm talking about. But you get to steal people's creatures for two and a, or for one and a green. It's just a very, very good little synergy. 
I think it should be played more than just the 11% of decks that are currently doing that. Yeah, I love that. That's a great pick. Once we get the correct name. Once we get the correct name. (laughs) If you ever see a morph, it's always Willbender. So it's just, it (laughs) just reigns true today. It's always a Willbender. Yeah, the name sticks in the mind. Okay, Dana, let's wrap up with your challenge. Uh, My challenge of stats is an old card from Apocalypse. It is three mana, a blue, red, and a green. The card is Guided Passage. It's a sorcery. (laughs) Good one. And it says, uh, reveal cards in your library. An opponent chooses from among them a creature card, a land card, and a non-creature, non-land card. Put the chosen cards into your hand and then shuffle your library. So it's a tutor that forces your opponents to pick the, the cards for you. So they will pick, presumably, a basic land and the weakest creature in your deck and then the weakest non-land, non-creature in your deck, which is, you know, depending on the point in the game, maybe a ramp spell or uh, a mana rock or something. Um, But that's for three mana. You're getting a land to hand to make your landfall. You're getting some kind of a blocker, you know, if it's a mana dork that still is going to ramp you out and some other kind of spell just for three mana. It's only in 632 decks, and I don't know if you want to run it in every deck that can run it, whether it's four or five colors, but man, I think it should be in more decks than that. That's a lot of value for three mana. I had a personal bet with myself about how long it would take before one of us mentioned Guided Passage, and I'm so happy that one of us finally did. That is the weirdest card in the world. When a card begins, reveal the cards in your library, you know you're in for a ride. There are so many political applications that you can use with Guided Passage to allow other people to help you find the thing that you need to take down a mutual opponent. That is such a zany card. I'm so happy to hear it mentioned. That is right, right. so Like, like what I described was the worst case scenario for it. There's the, right. the absolutely the, the political scenario for it. And, and talking about being a weird card, like the first time I saw this was in a collection I picked up at some point. As I'm digging through the cards, I ran across it. I'm like, well, this is a fake. I, I thought it was a fake card. I thought it was a card that somebody <laughs> made up. I'm like, well, this isn't, clearly isn't a real magic card. Someone made that up. It is not. It is a real card. It, it is one of the wonkiest legacy decks that has ever existed, where you basically give somebody a choice between Nimble Mongoose and true name nemesis and it's just such a weird card but for three mana like regardless of format you're getting just you're getting three cards out of it yeah oh my goodness that is so oh i'm so happy i like our challenges this week and i like this exercise that we went on as well thank you guys it was a great adventure to look through the most popular decks it is a fascinating thing to see and it will be even more fascinating in the future to see if any of the commanders are ousted from the top dog slot or if the exaggerated uh differences between them become even more exaggerated it will be fun to check back in with the next uh in the next year or so about what those commanders and their popularity will look like But for now, I think we need to wrap this episode up to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. And you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. 
And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDH Rec and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on EDH Rec's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. Don't forget, if you are in the Seattle area, come meet me at the Command Fest in Seattle, which will be happening the very weekend this episode airs. And if you're in the Chicago area, Dana will be attending that Command Fest as well. So please come say hi. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. I'm good, actually. I, I got a quick little run in at the gym. You had a run in at the gym? Well, I got a run in to my schedule. You ran into your schedule? Dude, that sounds painful. Yeah. Astute joke. That's not even a dad joke, Joe. Well, that's just, see, see, that's why there's there's a quality about jokes that makes them dad joke tier. And none of mine reach it, but Matt's do. Like, that's interesting. A joke becomes a dad joke when it's all grown up.